Our next question will come from Frank. Frank is new to the fireside chat, so welcome, Frank. I know you've been waiting quite a while to get some of your questions answered. So, uh, if you please go ahead. Yeah. Thank you, Donna, and uh, hi, Tom. Um, I've got a question uh, related to fears, and in particular, the fear of death and the fear of pain, which I think are two types of fears that um, almost everyone will admit that they have. So I understand that um, because of our high entropy, we enter this life and then encounter certain situations that then trigger our fears. And these fears are a tool that we should work on and to try to get rid of the, those fears and try to lower the entropy. So I think everyone quite from the beginning of their lives will have those fears of pain and probably death triggered. So our now that we have to work on all our fears and try to get rid of all of them, is that also true for those two? Is is the goal really also to get rid of the fears of pain and death? And is that even possible? I think you've said somewhere that you can really get rid of the fear of death only if you've had a really intense uh, experience of the bigger picture so that you know your consciousness, you're not your body. And um, yeah, but... I somehow sense that the fears of pain and death, they still have also the function that we don't kill ourselves too early so that we make sure our avatar survives. Um, yeah, so that's my, that's, uh, I've got a few add-on questions, but only if there's time. So that would be really my, my main question okay. is our primary goal to get rid of those as well. And you make a good point is that a, a fear of pain does have some survival value in a, you know, thinking of our, our avatar's evolution and our avatar's evolution, uh, obviously, you know, avoiding both pain and death were good things. You know, if you are an avatar evolving in this world, you want to avoid, uh, um, both of those things so that you can, you can, uh, continue. So if, you know, you eat a particular plant and it makes you sick, then you don't want to be sick again, so you don't eat that plant. You know, you avoid that. It's not a good thing. So the difference is, is that you can use your, you can use your, your, your mind to come up with things like, this is not a good plant to eat because it made me terribly ill, gave me a, a lot of stomach pain. But that's different than fearing it. You see, that's a, you've come to a conclusion. You've learned something. Now you're smarter than you were before. Now when you see that plant, you will no longer pick it up and eat it because you've tried it a couple of times and it always makes you sick. So now you're smarter than you were before. That doesn't necessarily mean that you fear that plant or fear eating that plant. So we have to break into different things, this, you know, this idea of, being aware of things that hurt and avoiding them because you're more, because you're smart enough to do that or avoiding things because you fear them. Two different, uh, motivations there. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now the fear is always a problem. If you fear that plant, then that's irrational. If you fear, you know, the, the bear that lives in the cave, the fear is irrational and won't help you. It will always be in your way. If you understand that the, bear, that the bear in the cave or the plant are dangerous and you need to take precautions, then that understanding is very helpful and just allows you to act more intelligently when you're in those dangerous situations. So fear is always a problem. You know, if you run into that bear out in the woods and you fear it, you will produce an odor that will make that bear want to come after you because you smell like prey. You smell afraid. And if you immediately turn and run, you will induce that bear to chase you because that's what bears do. When things run away from them and there are predators, they chase. That's a predator reaction. So your fear will make you do exactly the wrong things, the things that will that make it more likely you get eaten by the bear. Whereas if you understand the the uh, the dangers of bears in the woods, then you've probably come prepared. You have your your air horn and your uh, pepper spray 
and you know whether you should stare at the bear's eyes or look away. You have some idea as to what behavior is going to trigger their their aggression or not trigger their aggression. So at least you've optimized your probability of survival by being not afraid, by being able to to function, not just be stricken by terror and run, you see, or just frozen in spot and can't move, you know, any of those things. So fear is always a bad idea. Fear doesn't really help preserve you. Fear is always something that is a negative. Now, what about the fear of, of the pain? Well, now we're really talking about fear, not just being smart to avoid things that might hurt us, but being afraid of things, having fear about them. Well, yes, a lot of people have fear around pain and they have fear around death. Uh, I would say death is probably the bigger one. Many times the pain, it's a little hard to separate whether that's just being smart and being more educated or whether that's a fear, you know. But, um, well, well, we'll take the pain when, uh, for instance. Let's say um, people who... Um, don't like going to dentists. Now, I expect that's almost all of us. I don't know anybody that really just can't wait to go to a dentist again, you know. That, uh, probably very few people who just love going to dentists. But when you go to the dentist, if you are fearful of the pain that you're going to experience, then what you do is sensitize yourself to pain. And every tiny little thing that you feel, you interpret as horrible pain. So the dentist can just kind of touch your teeth and it's painful. And when he has to drill out cavities, it's excruciating. Whereas if you're not fearful, you may not like it. And it is going to be painful, but you just go, well, it's just going to, you know, it'll hurt a little bit, but it's not a big deal. I'll just, you know, I'll get through it. I'll, I'll just experience it and it'll be fine. Well, then they can drill your teeth out without any Novocaine, without any painkiller, and it's not all that bad because you're not fearful. You're just accepting what the pain is, and you don't create more pain than's actually there. Reminds me of my daughter, Danielle, who if she would get a splinter, she was so fearful that before I even touched her, she'd begin to scream, you know, as I'd get closer and closer with my tweezers to pull that thing out, and I haven't even touched her yet. She'd start wailing. And uh, that was just because she had all that fear into how much it was going to hurt. And just the thought of it hurt. You know, she could feel the pain just thinking about the pain she thought she was going to feel. So in that case, all I could have done is, is barely brushed her skin with a hair and she would have screamed. So that's that's kind of the pain thing. If you just accept it and say, all right, it's going to hurt to have my teeth drilled out, you know, the world's supply of Novocaine is is gone, and I'll just have to have them drilled without it, then most people could get through it okay with not a big, it wouldn't be pleasant, but it wouldn't be that bad either, you see. So fear, whether it's pain or whether it's death, is different than just being aware and accepting. So we can learn to accept pain when we have to, and then the pain generally isn't nearly so bad. Now, the fear of death is something bigger. Some people have a tremendous fear of death. Often those who have experienced death when they were young, you know, they had a, a parent die while they were five or six years old, or their dog died when they were, you know, at a, at a young age or something, and they have this idea of death being a horrible thing, and they don't want to experience it. So they have this fear of death. It works the same way. When you get to the point in life that you can just accept death, yeah, death is what happens. <laughs> it happens to all of us. You know, it's one of the few things we can be certain of is that we are going to die. And when you just accept that, and that's okay, you don't find that as a terrible thing, then death loses its bite. It's not something that frightens you. And it turns out that people who have, you know, bigger worldviews, I've heard these people called big brain people, but it has nothing to do with the size of their brain. It just means that people who have uh, bigger pictures about life, they also have very little fear of death. And I read a, a study about that, and they, they looked at people who were considered to be brilliant people. 
Um, you know, Einstein was one of them, but the, he was just one of maybe 20 or 30 people in the study. And what they did is, is, is in talking with those people and as the records of what those people had said and how they acted, they acted in ways that, that showed that they had very little fear of death, that they just accepted it. So as you have a bigger picture and see that death is just part of the process, then death is no longer fearful. Just because you're not afraid of it doesn't mean that you'd like to die or that you're going to jump off a cliff because you're not afraid of death. That's being stupid. You know, that's back to the difference between being intelligent and, and uh, being fearful. So being unafraid of death does not make you take risks. It just means that if you die, you accept that. I suspect the people who are very good at dangerous things all have that. If you are going to be a race car driver where your race car goes like 250 mile an hour in the straightaways and any kind of a mishap is often fatal, I suspect you have to make peace with death and accept that or you wouldn't be in that business. You wouldn't be able to push your car right to the, you know, to the edge and maybe a little bit more. And if you don't push it to the edge in a little bit more, you'll never win because that's the person who wins is the person that can go right up to that fine line between survival and not. That's the guy that wins the race. So if you're in that kind of a dangerous business or you are one of those people that walks around 20 stories up on a, on a piece of steel that's 12 inches wide and you just walk nonchalantly, you know, across the superstructure and you're a hundred feet in the air, but you're the guy that carries the rivets out to the, out to the person that's putting the rivets in and you walk on those every day. You've had to already decide or come to the conclusion that death happens and it's not fearful. If you're fearful, you can't walk on a 12 foot, on a 12 foot wide beam and not fall off of it because the fear makes you clumsy. Again, the fear creates the thing that makes the fear come true. So the fear of death, you don't have to have a major experience understanding that uh, we are consciousness to get rid of the fear of death, but you do have to have a bigger picture that allows you to see and accept that death is just part of the process of living. If you're alive here, you're going to die here. And that's just the way it is. And you just accept that. And it's not a terrible thing. It's just the way of things. And once you accept it, then that fear goes away. So, yes, you can get rid of those fears. They're not indelible. They're not something that is impossible to get rid of. But most people have them. Uh, it takes a concerted effort to get rid of them. But getting rid of them doesn't mean that you pretend to get rid of them. You see, that's another problem. You can You can convince yourself in your intellect that, oh, death is just a natural process. There's nothing to be really fearful about. It'll happen when it happens. I'll try to be smart and clever in my life, so to put it off as long as possible, but it'll happen, and that's okay. You can convince yourself of that intellectually, but your intellectual understanding won't help at all to get rid of your fear. Fear is not an intellectual process. It's an irrational process, and you have to deal with it down at the intuitive level, down at the knowing level. That's where you have to feel that it's okay, that death is not really a bad thing. It's just a thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's how you get rid of it, uh, down at that level, usually a big picture, that you understand that intuitively is what's required. And so uh, if I may just come quickly back to uh, getting rid of the fear of pain, um That's, well, you say you just have to accept it. That's probably for someone who still has all that fear. That's the very difficult part. I mean, understanding mm -hmm. that it's, it's bad to have it and that it doesn't make a visit to the dentist nicer. That's easy, that understanding. But, yeah, how to get rid of the fear of pain? You just have to go, you have to experience it, actually, and then tell yourself, actually, it's not that bad. There's no way, really, to prepare for all the terrible things that might come. No, you just have to, in general except that sometimes things hurt and that the hurt is necessary. By the time you're done, it's going to be much better to have that cavity filled than to let that tooth just rot in your mouth. That that is going to be much more painful, having that tooth rot in your mouth, 
than the alternative, which is to let the dentist drill out the rot and put a filling in it. So when you realize that that is the smart thing to do, then accept it and say the pain is necessary. I need to have the tooth drilled out. The pain is necessary because otherwise it'll be a lot more pain. So you just accept it. And when you accept it, yes, it hurts, but it's not a big deal. We can we can take a lot of pain if we have to, when we need to. As long as we're, no, no, I don't, I don't want it. I don't want it. You know, we're in that kind of a, of a, a frightened of the pain. That's when it hurts 10 times worse. So yes, it's just a matter of, of facing it, dealing with it, accepting that it is necessary and then going forward. And most of us can do that if it's a down to the wire life or death thing. You know, we can, we can do that. It's not, uh, you know, like the, the muskrat, you know, is gets his foot caught in a trap. If he thinks that, uh, you know, he'll struggle with it for a while, but when he hears the trapper coming through the woods and he knows that the end is near, he decides that it's better to chew his leg off and he'll chew his foot off in order to escape because he can still survive even with one foot. He's not going to survive otherwise. So at that point, when it gets right down to the rock and the hard place, most people will face up and do the thing that will be the optimal, smart thing for them to do. Well, I don't know about most people, but at least some people will be able to do that. Others will not. Others will just sit there and and wait for you know some end because they can't function because the fear is basically in control. So, yeah, no easy way. You just have to accept it and uh, and let it be. And when you do that, you find that it's not as bad as you think. It's not as horrible as you think. Because at the same time, you are creating a mental strength to help absorb that pain. Such when that muskrat's chewing his foot off, the muskrat is not that it isn't feeling that pain like it would be if you just had it trapped and we're cutting its foot off. You see, it is doing it, so it creates its own analgesic, if you will. It, 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 creates, it, it, it creates its own painkiller in the sense that it is just accepting it. Once accepted, then the pain just kind of rolls off like it's there, but you don't pay any attention to it. But you have to be accepting to do that. Okay. Thank you very much. I might have, um, if time, if there's time later, I might have add-on questions, but I would like to let the others go first. Okay. Thank you, Frank. You're certainly welcome to come back and ask another question if we have time. We have Mario here also today. Welcome, Mario. Mario's question concerns anti-rats, the anti-rats concept that you have in your book, My Big Toe. This anti-rats concept was for sure one of the most difficult for me to grasp. I can picture someone going up and reducing entropy and someone going down and increasing entropy. If by an anti-rat or anti-rats, we are talking about just people that are high entropy, that's easy. But it seems to me there is more to it that I don't catch. Could you please elaborate more on the anti-rats? Are some of them overarching negative organizations competing within the LCS for the people like the dark side of the force? Somehow part of a much bigger thing. Can you give us more of your concept of anti-rats? Well, anti-rats in the, in the book was, was just a metaphor, of course, for all of those things out there that make it difficult for you to grow up. Uh, all those people out there that help pull you down, all the the environments and the uh, the um, kind of shared space, all the all the um, uh, influences that help pull you toward higher entropy. Okay, that is that's kind of was a the anti-rights were just a metaphor for all the negativity out there that makes it harder for you to grow up and for you to become positive. For the most part, it was just what you said that's easy. Just 
for the, it's just people who are not very grown up. Just people who are struggling, but they, they show their lack of, of, uh, growth. They show their high entropy just in the way they interact. And they are, they tend to be negative. They tend to have lots of fear. They tend to have lots of beliefs. And for the most part, that's what I meant by anti-rats. And that was the part you said, well, that's easy. And that's mostly what it was. It's just easy. It's just that. Now, there are, um, there are some negative entities that are not physical. You know, we, we talk about, I guess we can talk about different groups of anti-rats. The main one I was talking about is, like I say, just not, just people who aren't grown up, but that are physical here, people who have bodies here that are high entropy. But there are high entropy beings that don't have bodies here. And sometimes, uh, they may, uh, influence people that are here. So you can have anti-rats of a different type that are non-physical. But for the most part, that doesn't affect the average person. It affects the average person very little. It's not a major effect. It's an effect in the margins. It will affect individuals sometimes. The, the effect there is more on the movers and the shakers because an anti-rat at the non-physical level gets is trying to manipulate, is trying to uh, influence, and influencing, uh, you know, somebody to go home and 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 uh, kick the dog and and you know, be rude to their wife. Well, there's not a big payoff in that. There's not a whole lot gained. So the movers and shakers of the world get more influence. That's negative because they can affect more people at that level. Okay, coming from the coming from the non-physical rather than the physical, so there is some of that going on. But again, I'd say it's in the margins. Now, that sort of thing does not abrogate your free will. You still have free will, even if there's something in your intuition that's saying, you know, you should do a bad thing, you know, you should be mean, you should smack that other person to get even. Even though there's something telling you that and urging you to do that, you can always say, no, I don't do that because, you know, I have higher quality than that. It's not a good thing to do. It's a high entropy thing to do. In the long term, it's going to cause me more trouble than it saves. It's just an ego thing to do. So even at these mover and shaker levels, they always get to say no. They have free will. But there is influence pushing and pulling them in all sorts of directions, because that's what we do to people who are movers and shakers. Everybody who has some sort of connection to them tries to influence them to their own benefit. And that is uh, just the way the world works. So the anti-rats mostly are not a big deal. They're pretty easy. Uh, Occasionally, it's from outside, not inside. Um, That's in the margins and doesn't really affect things here that much. It, um, you know, it's more the, uh, the old, um, the old metaphor that you have a, an angel on one shoulder that's trying whispering in this ear, telling you what to do. That's good. And the devil on the other shoulder, whispering in that ear, telling you what to do. That's wrong. And that you, you know, you get to choose as to which one you're going to listen to. Well, it's sort of like that, if you will. That little devil on your shoulder then would be the, would be the anti-rats. Some of that is just in your, in your background, in your culture. Um, some of it is the, is the people who, who, uh, tend to pull you down. And it could be from outside of our, of our, uh, system. But mostly the system is made safe for us so that, e- that outsiders cannot push us into things that we don't want to do. They can only encourage. But movers and shakers are used to being encouraged from all sides all the time because if you have if you have power then everybody who has less power is trying to help steer your power. And they're very used to having that and generally they uh, know how to Listen or not listen. So does that help, Mario? 
I don't know if the rest of you know Mario, but Mario is the guy who translated my big toe to Brazilian Portuguese. He translated all three books. He has them all published, and they're for sale, uh, I guess, for anywhere in the world. But uh, Mario is the guy who has, who has uh, put MBT in another language, completed all three books, and has them out there. So thank you, Mario. That was quite a take an undertaking. He and, oh, I don't know, two, three, four other people worked for, I don't know, two or three years on the project. And uh, about a year ago, they'd finished the last book and have them all out. So that's Mario. <laughs> yes, thank you, Mario. That was a, a grand task indeed. We also have present here today Ingo. And Ingo, if you would like to go ahead with your question, please do. Yes, thank you, Donna. I will read my question. Um, hello, Tom, and hello to everybody. Uh, sometimes it's difficult for me to live graceful with uncertainty because I tend to worry that things don't work out well. I know that's likely a fear and ego problem, and I do some self-talk that growing up is about others, that fear doesn't help, and that challenges are good. Um, currently, for example, I have applied to graduate school, and I hope they will accept me, but this is still uncertain. And my father inherited us a house with some mortgage left, and we hope the bank plays along and let us pay the amount back. I'm not concerned all day long, and I also have in parts a curious view of the future, but I have my moments of concern. Sometimes I also have the feeling I get little signs, like you are thinking too much, don't worry, everything is going to be okay. And usually it all went well, and all that worrying is unnecessary. It would be great to hear your advice about this habit and maybe a little encouragement to keep on the work. I think this is a common habit and I hope others can also benefit from your response as well. Thank you very much, Tom. Okay. Uh, this is, will be, the answer to this will be a bit of an extension from uh, my answer uh, to Frank. And that is there's often, it's often difficult to know whether you're acting out of fear or whether you're acting out of, you know, intelligence, right? Uh, it is good to let things unfold as they might. It's good to kind of go with the flow rather than try to struggle against the natural flow of things. But every interaction that you have is unique. You know, whether it's one of how you're going to pay your mortgage or, you know, whether about your school, whether you get accepted. And if so, what are you going to do? What kind of, you know, how, how should you prepare yourself for that? What kind of knowledge do you need to, you know, to take that on? All of these things, you can approach any of them with fear and you can approach any of them just with knowledge and acceptance. So you need to be aware. You need to be prepared. You need to be able to plan. All these things are just being intelligent, trying to optimize the choices you make to be good choices. Okay, so that's good. There's nothing wrong with having a brain and using it to, you know, not eat berries that made you sick, you know, three times in a row or Take your pepper spray and your air horn with you when you walk in the woods during mating season for bears. You know, you should be prepared. You should think about things. But once the thinking turns into worry, once the thinking turns into something that you go over and over and over in your mind, say when you're trying to sleep and you can't sleep because you're, you're thinking things, now you've kind of crossed that line into a, into a fear. A worry is just a, what a, a gray version of black fear. It's, it's a, it's fear light when you worry. So do think the, think through the things that you're doing. Make your best choices for success in what you're doing. Having made your best choices, do it. Execute the choice. 
Now, every so often, you can go back and say, well, let me recheck those choices. Is there anything I missed? Did I get something wrong or did I forget to, to think about something? Go back over it again. And if you say, no, nope, nope, I don't have any real new data, then keep going. If you find that, uh, oh, I see, I didn't expect that, that changes things. Well, then change your plans. So you need to be flexible. You need to be able to think and rethink easily, but you don't need to get twisted up about, am I doing it right? Was that the right thing? Is that the wrong thing? Should I have done that? Should I have done the other thing? Do that once, and then once you've decided (laughs) what you're doing is the right thing, then just proceed and do it and let the rest go. So when we say go with the flow, doesn't mean that you stop planning and you stop trying to make good choices for, uh, you know, for your future. It just means you stop worrying. You stop trying to make everything be the way you want it to be. As things work out or don't work out, you can make changes, change your plans. Things are different. Okay, so you just react to them. You don't react to them with anger. You don't react to them with being upset. So let's say you take your your tests and uh, you fail your tests and you don't get in. Well, now, you just accept that and you say, well, I didn't make it that time. Where did I go wrong? You know, what was my weak point? What part of the test was I not so good at? And what parts were I good at? And if you can figure that out, then you go relearn that parts and you go take your test again. And, okay, you just do it. You don't have to be angry with yourself. You see, that's just ego and fear. You don't have to be upset. You don't have to call yourself stupid or do any of those things. You just say, well, that happened. Now I can, here's, here's my choices now. I can let that go and not go that route, or I can study it and take it again. Or, you know, I can, uh, I can study it differently. So you see what I mean? It's just going through your, your life, making choices, changing your plans, dealing with things the best you can and moving forward without the anger, without the recrimination, without the worry. Just it's your life and it's unfolding. It'll unfold someplace and wherever it goes, it's going to be good. Whether you pass that test and go on to become whatever it is that will enable you to become or whether you're, you change now and do something totally different, it's all a challenge. It's all good. And it can all lead you to a good place. So it's not like you're going to make a mistake and it's going to ruin the rest of your life. You're going to make a mistake, perhaps, and it means you're going to make a change, but life goes on and it's always good. It's always positive. You see, in that way, nothing can really go too wrong because even if everything collapses and everything that could go wrong does go wrong, well, you pick it all up and you head off in another direction and that's going to be full of great challenges and you're going to learn a lot and that's going to be fine. So it's that sort of attitude. Always have a positive attitude toward whatever it is you're doing. It's the overthinking, the worry, the I really need this, I really want this, it has to happen, and if it doesn't, it'll be a disaster. You need to let go of the it'll be a disaster. You need to say, and if it doesn't, I really want this, and I'm working hard for it, but if it doesn't happen, well, I'll do something else. And that something else will lead me to the next thing, which will lead me to the next thing, and that's life. However that shakes out, I'll live it to the fullest. doesn't matter so much what you do as the quality with which you do it. That's what you learn from. Okay, so that would be my advice. Uh, Use your intellect. That's a good thing. Planning is a good thing. But don't get wrapped up around what happens. What happens is whatever happens, and you'll deal with it as it happens. If you start making plans such that this has to happen, then that has to happen, and this other thing starts to happen, that's when you get a lot of stress and you get a lot of worry and you get fearful that somewhere in that chain doesn't work. Your life's going to be terrible, and it's not going to be terrible. It's just going to be different because in order for a life to be terrible, you have to be full of fear and ego. Not about what you're doing or not doing. It's about you have to be full of fear and ego. So if you're not full of fear and ego, your life's never going to be terrible. It's just going to be different.
Does that help, uh, Ingo? Or did I miss, did I, you can ask, you can ask back another question if you want, if it didn't quite hit the point. Mm, uh, it hits a point, um, and I appreciate your answer. All right, thank you. Uh, next, Chris is listening in, right? Chris, are you ready to ask your question? Uh, yes, Donna, I'm here. Thanks, Donna and Tom. All right. Uh, Meyer, just a couple quick questions, and you can expound on them. Um, what is your take on the development of artificial intelligence into this simulation, and do you think artificial intelligence uh, could be an air correction to the overall simulation to help the AI or to allow AI to help us in entropy reduction? Well, you know, anything could help us in entropy reduction. You know, anything, be it positive or negative, will create challenges for us to make choices. And if those choices are good, then that helps us grow up. So any change, any major change, you know, the fact that we have an Internet, you know, that changes the way we make choices, changes the way we view the world. So all of these changes that are major changes will create a different set of choices. Because of this Internet, the choices we have in a day are different than they would be without it. We have access to so much more information, <laughs> so much more bad information and so much more good information. And, uh, you know, it challenges us to uh, sort all that out. So, yes, your your last part of the question, anything major like that will give us opportunities to evolve or de-evolve, and we can make either one. Either way, we can we can de-evolve or, or evolve because of them, and mostly they hold potential to go either way because it's not the thing. It's the person making the choice that decides whether it's going to be an entropy reduction or, or an entropy uh, gain. So not the thing itself, but how we interact with it. It's our choice that makes that difference, whether it turns out to be a good thing or a bad thing. It's about us, not about it being a good thing or a bad thing for the most part. It's how we interact with it that's a good thing or the bad thing. But, okay, what about um, what about uh, artificial intelligence, uh, AI? Artificial intelligence comes in really two forms, um, and it's kind of a broad, a broad term. It has become, I guess, in the literature, kind of a broad term. And one one branch of it is basically emulating humans, okay? Because the definition of intelligent is human. If if you're human, then that's how you define intelligence. It's being like you, right? So, yes, that is pretty arrogant and, and, uh, and uh, obviously full of ego, but that's the way we are. So if it, if it mimics human, then it's intelligent. And as it mimics other things, then it's not so intelligent because we are the, we are the very picture of intelligence in our, in our own minds anyway. So if you may, can make a robot act just like a human, then we'll call that artificial intelligence. But that is an emulation. A robot can can act like a human, but a robot can't be human because the human has other characteristics besides just information. Characteristics it has are, are much more subtle. It has feelings. Okay? It has a lot of irrational components to it. It has... Um, uh, it has more than just uh, an intellect. Okay? So it has intuition. And these things are not things that you compute. These things are things that come with being conscious. So an emulation can be a very, very good emulation. It can be so good that we couldn't tell it from what it's emulating. Right? An emulation means it's just something that, that isn't A, but acts, looks, and smells like A. Like if you have a, 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 a Apple computer, your Apple computer will have a PC emulator, something that will allow you to work to use PC software, and it goes into a, an emulator that makes it look like it's a PC to that software. You see? So that's a PC emulation inside of an Apple computer. 
Well, let's say you had a, a robot, and that robot had a lot of sensors that it could see and smell and hear and feel. It had lots of very sensitive sensors. Maybe they were more sensitive than our own biological sensors, and it could see, smell, <laughs> hear, uh, and, and uh, taste much more sensitively than we could. So it could smell things we couldn't, hear things we couldn't. You know, well, maybe that would be better than human in the sense of its ability to do those senses. But how would you program its intuition? How would you program its feelings? So you could take that robot and the robot could pick a rose and sniff the rose and tell you what species it was of rose and give you its Latin name because all of that would be contained in a database and the nose sensor would be able to sense that particular chemical that was that was uh, unique to that particular species of rose, look it up on a database and say, ah, make the match. Here's what my sensor said. That matches with this. That's a such and such species of rose. So it would make you think that uh, this thing was human, but it's just an emulation. It's not conscious. It just is very quick at going through data. Okay, now, on the other hand, if you have consciousness, you have another level of processing going on that is not emulated with algorithms, and that is the intuitive and the feeling aspect, the emotional aspect. That robot who smells that rose doesn't particularly have an emotional connection to that rose. Now, it may go through its database and say, well, where have I smelled this before? Oh, yes, I smelled this at such and such a time, and that was a sad time, so I should act sad now and put the sad look on my face. But you see, it wouldn't feel sad. It's only an intellect. That being level doesn't exist. It's data. It's information. That's an algorithmic approach. All right. Now, if we go to more subtle things that aren't just algorithmic and data, they're, they are, um, they're things that have uncertainty in them. They're things that they make choices without having any, uh, data to make that choice. They make choices on hunches or they make choices maybe if it's just by random. Those sorts of things, okay, have the, ability to have free will. So it still could be a computer program, but the computer program is not just algorithmic. It's now, say, neural networks that program themselves in ways that the programmer doesn't do. The neural network changes its own internal code based on getting right answers. And after a while, the people who have created the neural network have no idea how it's coming up with those answers. It just knows that if you give it a lot of right answers, it will eventually figure out how to get right answers on its own, in its own way. And if you give it a complex problem, it may try to solve it just in its own way, in its own uh, hunches. Now, maybe if we're clever enough, and I don't know that neural networks will be enough, we may have to invent some other kinds of ways of doing this, but eventually we can create software and hardware that actually makes choices, has a free will. And in which case, if it has free will and makes free will choices, some IUOC will log on and begin to play it. And when an IUOC logs on and begins to play it, that computer becomes its avatar. And it makes all the choices, and that computer is conscious. And it's got a conscious component. And when that computer dies or gets bashed or has its plug pulled out, that consciousness that was playing it, that IUOC that was playing that computer avatar, still exists and still lives, you see. So if you want to get uh, religious and theological, you'd say that computer has a soul. You know, that computer is, is really conscious, and it has feeling, and it it's fully conscious. So that is kind of the difference. And those two things may actually meet somewhere. If we have, depending on the software and the hardware that's possible, we haven't, we haven't invented that yet. So we don't know, not at least at the level of a human. We've invented that at the level of an insect already. We have programs that function like insects and make choices like insects and seem to have free will like insects do, but 
that free will is so small and so whatever that it uh, it seems to work pretty well with algorithms. We can mimic it real easily. So there's this this point where maybe the two converge, but for now. I see those as two separate things. One is algorithm-based, and it can be a very fine emulation. And we have another that the actual software hardware itself creates a non-algorithmic free will choice. And that free will choice then can be played by a consciousness, just like the biological avatar that we call a human being can be, or a horse or a dog or a cat can be uh, uh, played by an IUOC. So that's kind of my idea on, on AI and conscious computers and that sort of thing. There's two different, two different ways to get to it. But yes, no matter how we get to it, it will change our choices. Our decision space will be modified when we have algorithmic or conscious computers to work with because that will be another whole set of choices. And again, we will make choices for better or for worse. If we make poor choices, it will not turn out well. If we make good choices, it will turn out well. It's up to us. Thanks, Tom. All right, next we have Mao. If you'd like to ask your questions, I know you have two of them. Please go ahead. Yes, thank you, Donna. Hi, Tom. Hi, everyone, and uh, Happy New Year. Uh, my question is uh, uh, related with uh, Mario's question somehow. It's, it's a little long, so just bear with me. Uh, recently, I came across a couple of long videos that talk about the uh, consciousness being fundamental, virtual realities, the need to become love, and so on. And they catch my attention because everything seems to be aligned with MBT for the most part. But uh, there came a point in which the presenters talked about the uh, PMR as being uh, as having been created by non-physical beings that literally feed on human fear and suffering, what the ancient Gnostics refer to as the archons or demons. Allegedly, these beings are more like machines without free will or creativity, but their programmed code is very efficient they set the circumstances in PMR so that we are always pushed to a state of fear. Being so efficient, they are indeed in control of the fundamental circumstances of our PMR. They also operate through physical avatars and occupy positions of power in governments, financial institutions, and other criminal activities. The presenters said that due to the lack of creativity and love, our PMR... Um, uh, is created by them and um, it's really a bad copy of a much harmonious uh, or other much harmonious PMRs. Our kind of PMR is also known as the Lucifer experiment. Apparently this experiment appears every so often uh, within consciousness and is rooted in the sen sense of separation and antagonism. Uh, do you have any thoughts on this, Tom? In your experience with a much bigger picture, have you encountered something that would point to all this as being true? Well, the answer to that in a word is no, never. I have not uh, ever experienced anything that would lend any credibility to that concept at all. Uh, and I can't, um, I can't really see that that would be a function of the system that doesn't seem like it's something the system would do to uh, lower entropy. You know, understanding the system, the, the larger consciousness system and how it works and why it works. I don't see that such a, such a, a thing as, as what you're saying would serve any purpose. It would seem it would have a, a negative purpose. The system, the way it is now, is our reality is what it is because of the choices that have been made from the beings that have played you know, avatars here. And there's plenty of poor choices. We don't need to create, you know, a system that feeds negativity. There's, there's enough of that happens just uh, naturally. And I see no point for it. I see no logic that you can hang it on. 
it seems to me to be a product of fear. It seems to me that as you get a bigger picture and you start wondering, you know, what's the next bigger step? And you get to a point of a larger consciousness system or something like that. A fearful person will then begin to see things that are scary. Well, what if the LCS is evil? What if it, uh, you know, is doing this or doing that? And the idea that we are, you know, I've heard it stated other ways. The way you stated it was, was maybe the, the best way I've heard it yet. But often it comes across as this is the prison planet. You know, we're all really imprisoned here and non-physical beings are sucking up our energy and the, all the negativity that's here is put here on purpose because all of the emotion and feelings and, and, uh, angst and anger and all of that stuff is what these beings feed on. And this is called prison planet. That is just nonsense. It's people who are fearful making up something that's scary because fearful people see fearful things and it turns out then that spreads around and pretty soon it's a conspiracy theory about, oh, the people in charge here, you know, they're part of the, you know, the, the, the monsters that run this prison planet and part of it and we're the victims. People who are fearful usually have a need to see themselves as victims because that way they escape responsibility for it being the way it is. This world is nasty and whatever, but it's not my fault. You know, I'm just a victim here. I don't have any, uh, you know, it's nothing I did or not doing or whatever. It's not that I didn't grow up. It's, it's, uh, being a victim is a way of escaping responsibility for your, for where you are and, and who you are and what you're, what you're doing. You don't, don't have to take charge. You're just a victim. You can't do anything. You just suffer. Your job is to suffer and somebody else makes all the rules. You know, well, I'm a victim. I'm helpless. No blame here. So I think that sort of attitude comes from a victim mentality, which comes from a fearful mentality that whatever it is they see, they look for the dark side of it. Show them anything and they will see the dark side of it because they're fearful and the dark side is the side that lets them be not responsible. They're victims. Okay. They're not, they're not responsible for the fact that this world is a nasty place and that it's full of fear. It's full of greed. It's full of anger. You know, it's full of uh, people trying to manipulate and take other people's stuff. It's not their fault. They're just an innocent victim. Whereas if you're not a victim, then you have to realize that you're either part of the problem or part of the solution. You know, either you're feeding this, this uh, monster and help making it worse, or you are growing up and challenging others to grow up and not partake in the ego and the greed and the rest of it. So you do have a responsibility to grow up and you can change things. So I think that's where it comes from. And um, I've heard that a lot. It's, um, I don't find anything to uh, support it either theoretically that it would possibly be that way, that the system could have something like that, that is supposed to be an entropy reducer. The system isn't going to create subsystems and, and uh, virtual realities that are entropy creators. Now it may create a system and by the choices of those entities in it, they may become you know, high entropy, well, that's the result of their choices. But the system isn't going to create something that is fundamentally high entropy because that's contrary to its own evolution. That's contrary to its own survival. That is not a rational thing for the system to do. And one of some of the confusion that you get was a very poorly understood metaphor that Bob Monroe had in one of his books and it talked about one of his out-of-body excursions. He found, he got this explanation from someone or some being, ran across it somehow. And that was that there were these these uh, beings out there who were feeding off loosh, L-O-O-S-H. And this loosh was being created by the feelings 
of humans. So if humans felt a lot of emotion, then they create a lot of loose in these, these, uh, I don't know what you'd want to call them, these non-physical beings. I mean, you can turn them into, into, uh, extraterrestrials if you like, or you can just leave them non-physical beings, or you can make them devils, or whatever your theology puts forth. But they are then harvesting the loose. So this place is a kind of a, a nasty place on purpose because it's a loose farm. That's why there's so much bad stuff going on here. And it's a similar idea to what you said. Well, Bob Monroe wrote that in his book. And like all people who get things when they're out of body, they have to interpret it. And you get information, and then you interpret it the best way you can do. And Bob made the best interpretation he could. Uh, it was a metaphor, like all the things you get are metaphors. Metaphor is the is the way you... You communicate. You communicate in metaphors when you're out of body. Very seldom do you uh, read books out of body or, you know, you know, watch movies or get things in linear detail. Mainly you get information metaphorically. Then you interpret that information you get. Well, the way that it works, I mean, what that loose metaphor was all about is that we humans, we evolve and de-evolve here. Okay, we're supposed to be lowering our entropy and becoming love, but we aren't. We are, we are often very egotistical and full of beliefs and do dysfunctional sorts of stuff. That dysfunction hurts us. That dysfunction keeps us from growing up. That dysfunction is part of what we have to work off. Okay, so if we de-evolve, then we're in a deeper hole to begin with than we were before. So the dysfunctional part is not good. It's something that puts us deeper and deeper into into uh, debt as far as evolving and having a low entropy, you know, becoming love. So that's bad, this dysfunctional part. And that's mainly what we do. Now, it's not that the larger consciousness system sucks up loose it's that that we create negativity for ourselves. We create our own problems. Okay, that's what's really going on. We create our own problems here, and love is the way to to grow out of it. So Bob got a metaphor that, or Bob got some information. He didn't actually get that metaphor. The metaphor was his own. We make up metaphors to explain the data we get. So he got something that talked about all the the greed and the rest of it, of how that was damaging and how that was not a good thing for us and that most people fed that negativity in their life here. And he took that and he turned it into Lush and that basically, uh, you know, we were a, a, a planet being farmed by others who were feeding on our Lush and that's not right. It wasn't the right context. It wasn't the right metaphor. So unfortunately, when you make a mistake like that and you put it in your book, you know, 10 million people read it and they take it literally rather than the metaphor that it is. And they miss the metaphor altogether. That uh, the negative, the negativity here is, is not good, which was the metaphor that Bob, Bob had. So no, I have no, I have no experience that says any of that's true. Matter of fact, my understanding of the larger reality says that I can't find a hook to hang that on. I can't find anything that the system would, you know, any reason why the system would do something, put effort and energy into creating something that was against its own self-interest. That was something that was, that was drag. It was a drag on its own evolution. That doesn't compute. This is an intelligent system. It's not going to create things that are a drag on its own evolution. So I just kind of put that off to fearful people finding you know, they say that, uh, you know, if you're a very positive person, you find a silver lining, even in, in a dark cloud. Well, some people who are paranoid and full of fear, they find a black lining in every silver cloud rather than a silver lining in every black cloud. And they find something to fear everywhere. And you can always you can always find things that kind of validate your fear. If you're terrified, if you live in New York City. 
and you're terrified of elephants, you will see a puddle on the ground and say, aha, see, that's an elephant's footprint. And you will see evidence of elephants everywhere. You'll see bushes shake in the distance and you'll say, aha, there's elephants hiding behind those bushes. See those bushes shaking. So you will find things that justify your fear in your environment. So people who come up with fearful ideas then go to great lengths to find justification for those things. And I find them all unnecessary in the sense that there's a much easier and better and positive explanation for things. And the fearful explanation doesn't add anything new. It doesn't add anything that you can't get to in another way as far as coming up with a, with a theory of reality and how it works. So there's, there's just no point in it. It's, it's a, it's an idea that has no value, no lasting value. It's just a negative fearful thing. So no, I just call that fearful nonsense. <laughs>